Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School, so listen, learn, enjoy and share. Entrepreneur Alan Morris was one of the early tech entrepreneurs of the 21st century. In 1999, he founded Retail Assist, providing uh, IT for high street retailers. He started his business in Nottingham with one client and a handful of staff. By the time he sold the company 17 years later, it had more than 240 employees and was working with big-name retailers and hospitality companies right across the country. In the last three years, Alan has founded another tech startup, Clect, this time handling data. And today he is our guest on the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast. Alan Morris, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Mike. Yeah, thank you for having me. So your career in business leadership initially followed a, how do I put this, non-traditional route. You decided not to go to university, but rather to join the Royal Navy. What was the, what was the thinking behind that? Um, I suppose at school, some people have a very uh, clear view about the career path that they might want to take. And, uh, and other people have particular topics that interest them massively and, um, and follow their lines accordingly through their academic early years of school and then have a view to, to university. I didn't, I didn't have a view at all when I was at school what I wanted to do when I left. And, uh, and I, I had a, an overall interest in, in learning, but nothing specific. So my brother and sister are quite a bit older than me, so I looked ahead at what they'd done. And my sister had uh, gone to university um, to study uh, languages in Aberystwyth. And my brother had joined the Navy. And uh, so, um, so I, I looked at uh, I looked at what they'd done and and, uh, and how how they were getting on, and I thought, well, I've been to Aberystwyth before, and uh, but my brother was sailing the world, and uh, so I decided that uh, I'd go off and sail the world. And how long did you? And how long did you sail the world? A year, and I actually never stepped foot onto a boat, and um, the. Uh, I, I realized during my time that um, the engagement with the forces is, is very different from engagement with uh, with the job. Yeah, you can start a new job in civilian life on a Monday, and uh, if you don't like it by Friday, you don't go back the following Monday. It's a bit different when you're when you're yeah. in the navy. And I got to a point because I joined when I was I joined when I was sixteen or seventeen, and uh, so. In the first year, I was able, if I could convince the uh, the powers that be that I was unhappy, I could leave as what was called an unhappy junior. And it was uh, ironic because I don't think I was terribly unhappy. I just didn't want to commit because the next commitment meant I wouldn't be able to leave until I was in my mid-20s. Right. And I, and I really couldn't see myself doing it for, for that long. So the first lesson was to, to, be, you know, to be in a position where you were light on your feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I think the navy, the navy brought more. Although I was only there for a year, it brought more out of me than uh, than, than school had. Right. Yeah. I didn't find school a terribly uh, inspiring place to be, and from from a learning perspective, and I don't think I really learned very much about myself at that time. But that's probably true of most people under the age sure. of sixteen. Yeah. You you just go through life, don't you? 
uh, trying to enjoy as much of it as you can. But the Navy made me realise that actually yeah, there, there is, I do have some things inside of me that I want to get out. It made me realise that actually I could achieve things uh, and it made me, certainly made me realise the, uh, the importance of working, working in teams. Teams, right, okay. So your next step was much more conventional, working in IT uh, at Adams, High Street brand. Um, IT in the 1980s, how was that? Well, it was, I, it was probably, I, I actually joined, um, I joined uh, Sears, um, who were a big retail conglomerate that later in life got bought by, uh, by Philip Green. Um, um, but I joined, I joined there, and it was sort of the late 80s and um, early 90s and we technology was was seen extremely differently in a retail setting or actually in the world and than it is today you know we were uh, the business was it was more of a, a data processing role yeah, yeah there's there a lot of data in the retail business and they wanted to process it and it was far more efficient to start to use computerized processing um, so but we weren't an integral part of the company um, you know, we were basically at the end of uh, a large, cor long corridor uh, under the ground. The only windows we had looked out over other offices. And we sat there. We had a very, very narrow remit. You know, we had the mainframe and we had one operating system and we produced reports on a Monday morning. And that was really all that was asked of us. I guess from a business perspective, it was an expensive resource because there were quite a lot of us. But in terms of output, we really didn't output a great deal other than just keeping the lights on. We certainly didn't add any other value other than a, maybe a financial value occasionally. Right. So, so you, you, you didn't stay long there either. You, really knew, no. you, you had to get out. No, no, no. No, actually, I, I, I stayed a while because um, the, um, I, I, I was lucky. I joined, and, and just after I joined, people started to realize that technology did have a part to play in business. And, uh, and business leaders and businesses in general started to become more questioning of what technology could deliver. So obviously by the mid-1990s, the, the internet was becoming a thing. And so things kept changing. And what, what I particularly liked about it, and I suppose what's kept me, what kept me working in the retail technology sector for so long, is that yeah, I, I do like change. And they're two very, very dynamic uh, environments, technology, you know, we all know, uh, changes massively and continues to change massively. And and retail equally changes massively because it's driven by consumer demand and consumer demand changes all of the time. So I really like the idea of, of, of change. There was a couple of occasions when I, uh, I thought you know, the, the change is perhaps too much. You can't keep up. You can never really satisfy anybody because by the time you delivered something, everything had moved on. It wasn't what people wanted. Um, so was that was that why you got out and wanted to do it yourself as an entrepreneur? Um, well, my my entrance into my entry into into working for myself was um, I I left working with uh, with Adams as you as you mentioned, and because um, I moved into that part of the business, I was part of the group at the time, and um, and I went uh, I went freelance, and and I worked freelance for uh, for a year um, at the time. My we were, my wife and I had had our well just just had our first child and my my contract came to an end and the next contracts were uh, I was looking out were in Scotland or down in London I thought I don't really want to be at home away that much 
So then I started thinking, well, if I'm, yeah, I'm running a, a team of, of contractors, I wonder if I could bring that team of contractors together. And we were doing some really good stuff with some really, in retail technology terms, some really leading edge technology. Other retailers will want to do this. Maybe we can drop in like a, a specialist team who come in and do specific projects for people. So it was recognizing that as an opportunity that, uh, that made me think I could start my, start my own business. Um, and so, so would you say that that was founded by, you know, was that based on, I know you've talked about your personal circumstance there, but was that based on the fact that you knew there was something you could definitely do um, rather than I just want to be an entrepreneur? I knew there was something that uh, I could, I could, that we could do as a business. I could, I could, I could create as a business. I recognised that um, whilst retailers were wanting more and more from technology, they're also getting squeezed on margins. So they were trying to reduce fixed costs. So the idea of him having a um, an expanding and retracting pool of resources that they could call upon that was different from contractors because with a contractor, as soon as you've gone, you've gone to another contract. What I thought, what, what I was creating was this ability to have um, continual contact with a pool of resources that you could use for a day, a month, a week, or, or was, for however long you wanted. Was that new, unusual then? Because um, it, it's more common now, isn't it? It is more common now, yeah. It's a, it's a lot more common now. I think um, in the retail technology sector, yeah, it was it was new at that time. I won't say that it was completely unique because somebody else must have been doing it. It's very difficult to be uh, completely unique. But it, um, it, it was new. It was definitely new to the, to the clients I was working with and the clients that, that I got, and, and they warmed to it. So I'm just wondering how much of a risk was that? Because I, I, I know from our previous conversations that when you founded um, Retail Assist in 1999, you weren't funded financially by anything other than your own profits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so do that. You couldn't do that now, though, could you? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, you, you, you say that. I mean, uh, you, you can. Um, I mean, we, we have done so far with, with Collect. And for, for similar reasons, I suppose, to re well, similar retail reasons to Retail Assist. And with Retail Assist, the reason we started Retail Assist, because the, the, the company before um, was all about projects. It was all about going off and, uh, and doing you know, projects for people. So they'd have a start, a middle, and an end, and then you'd look for the next one. But what I realized was, and with my uh, co-founder, was that you can't, um, you can't really create a business on that basis because the revenue streams are too lumpy. You need to have a, uh, a, a retained revenue, um, something that's recurring. And the only option for us really was to create a support element to the business. And uh, because that way we could get people to commit to, uh, to longer term contracts, which would give us a, a, a recurring revenue stream, which meant that we could make proper business decisions. Now, the thing is that you know, we basically was outsourcing IT managed services and, and IT outsourcing for retail companies. And uh, there was a risk involved because, you know, our competitors, our easy to identify competitors were the likes of EDS and Capgemini and IBM, who were massive. So we weren't 100 percent sure, although we were we were sure of our own abilities, we were sure of our own um, uh, intent and we, we were definitely not lacking in passion. We weren't 100 percent sure that it was going to work because you, you just never are because yeah, yeah. it, it's such a competitive market. I mean, it's good that it's competitive. I, I quite like the idea of competitive markets because it means there is a market 
<laughs> you know, when there's no competition, you think either you really are ahead of the game or there's no competition because nobody really wants what you've got. So I quite like the competition, but what we were, what we didn't have the confidence to do was to go out and get a lot of money in either investment or through through debt financing to come in. So that if it didn't work, then we'd we'd end up with a, a bit of a tricky financial situation. So we were lucky. We went out and we our first client was was Adams Children's Wear. Ironically, ironically, yeah, yeah. and, and but it, but not because you know I went back and I I, I met the people I worked with previously, and I just asked them to uh, to do this paper. It was a very different situation at that point. Adams had been bought out of the Sears uh, empire by uh, by Michael Hobbs and and his team, and um, and they they created the business, um, well, recreated the business again. And we're taking it to, to be a solo entity. But we went there and the, the pretext was that they didn't want their own IT department, but they realized the importance of, of IT. And um, but they were they were put off dealing with the bigger players because they'd previously been they'd previously worked with with one of the largest uh, outsourcing companies and it didn't work. And the reason they said it didn't work was that whilst they, the company were good at technology, they didn't really understand the nuances of retail. So our sales pitch was based on we could do the technology and we understand the nuances of retail. So we could really create a retail focused solution to you. So that was our that was our first win. And you were very successful at that. Um, we were the our when we when we first we went live in ninety nine with uh, with Adams and we basically provided all of their IT. So we looked after their support. And uh, we did all of their development work for them as well, and and it was very successful. And uh, Michael uh, Michael Hobbs and and the team were were very pleased with what we did. And at that time, Adams were were doing very very well, and they were the first uh, big sort of MBO in retail out of a, a group from, owned by Philip Green. And uh, so there was a lot of interest in uh, in what they were doing. And, and Michael said some very kind words about us, unsolicited by us in the press. About how we'd reduce costs and improved efficiencies, and yeah, and, that, was, and that was your first big contact. It, it, it was, yeah, and uh, and I'll always be grateful to uh, to Michael for that. But the uh, and the phone started ringing because we didn't have anybody in sales at that time, and we really didn't do any marketing. But the uh, the phone started ringing, and uh, on one hand, you're thinking, well, maybe we should just go out and grab these opportunities. But we needed to make sure that Adams was our flagship client because it was our first client. We were getting a lot of press. As soon as it left the harbour, the worst thing that could have happened is it could have sunk in public view. So we spent a lot of time making sure that what we were promising to deliver, we could deliver. And I suppose that's where, at times, that's where the funding gap became a bit of a problem because we always seemed to have the money just after we needed it. <laughs> I suppose if we'd gone for funding, we could have built the infrastructure and moved into it, right. uh, whereas we were actually building the infrastructure around us, which caused us growing pains. So we held back from getting the next client, but the next client we got was was equally sizable with uh, with Rubicon Retail Principles and Warehouse. So that's very prudent of you. So you worked your way through it, and these issues became um, less important as time went on. And seventeen years on, you were able to sell the business. Now this is a podcast about leadership. What would you say? Perhaps let's do it the other way around. What would your colleagues, your employees, current and past, what would they say is your leadership style? <laughs> I can say anything I like here, can't I? Because they can't. Say Perhaps it. I should ask them. Yeah, I know. I suppose they could. Uh, they could email in after. Um, I think 
they would say that my leadership style was probably consistent with my personality. And so it's uh, that authenticity. Exactly. <laughs> to me, you know, you can authenticity is the most important point in, of leadership. I, I you know, some people say I'm very different at home than I am at work. Not not me, but that they're talking about themselves. I'm exactly the same at home as I am at work because yeah, I am just one person. So I deal with situations in a private context in the same way as I would do. In a, in, I do my best. Yeah, I'm honest and, and I do whatever's required to uh, to get a situation sorted out. And um, I, I like to think that, that yeah, anybody who's worked with me would, would, would say the same. It's not always perfect. And uh, yeah, when, uh, when I had my 50th birthday at uh, Retail Assist, they made a, uh, a fantastic video for me, which um, yeah, introduced snippets from around the uh, from around the company. Because at that stage, we had four offices and we had about two hundred and something people, and people were giving their perspective on on me as an individual. And one person said, "Yeah, Alan comes up with a thousand ideas a week, and we try to implement as many as we can." Which sort of suggested them was suggested to me at the time that. Yeah, maybe maybe didn't see me as a complete finisher, but I think that's probably true. I, I don't think I am a complete finisher, but I um, I've, I've been very lucky to work with some some really good people. Um, and if I suppose really as a means of answering what do they think to my leadership style, um, for an IT tech companies have a very very high staff turnover, and uh, during the uh, the years of retail assist, our staff turnover was quite low. Yeah, we had people who joined the company. Um, you you put that down to leadership. Well, I, no, no, I can't. I can't claim. No, I can't, not necessarily your personal leadership, but I think was, it, it 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 comes down to the environment that you're working in, creating, and you've created. Yeah, and 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 the environment you created, leadership has to have a certain yeah has a, a certain part to play in that, a large part to play in that. So um, because leadership's not just down to the person who's got the role of CEO. It's not it's not the CEO is the leader and everybody else is a follower. You've really you've got layers of leadership, but every individual in the business has a, a leadership responsibility. Okay, but you were there seventeen years, so it must have developed over a period of time. The leadership definitely it, it developed over a period of time, mainly because when we first started, we were a very small group of people, and uh, we'd all known each other for a while. A lot of us known each other for a while, and it was a real team spirit very similar in some respects to when i was in the navy and you have that team spirit where people will do absolutely everything and anything to get the to get the job done then as the business grows and you start to introduce new layers of leadership one thing i've always been mindful of because we've fallen foul of this is where you start to create pockets of, of different approaches and you need to bring it all back on so you keep the same culture and same ethos in the business so it's how you adapt from having a uh, yeah starting off with a team of people that would have sat around this table with us today to actually having a team of people which would have filled half of this building and and then sure. equally geographically how do you create that spirit across across a much wider spread so my leadership style and the leadership style and the the culture of the business had to to change to accommodate that but it was absolutely critical that the real fundamental differences we had as a business, the things that made us stand out from the much bigger players, didn't get watered down. Such as? Well, such as the um, the fact that um, people took complete ownership 
for everything. They took ownership for what they did as individuals. They took ownership for what they did as groups. They took ownership of, of what we did as a company. Everybody had a pride in, uh, in what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got to make sure as the, uh, in, the, in the leadership team, especially as the CEO, that that's maintained. Because if you start to lose that, then the USP you have, the value that you have, gets watered down. If that gets watered down, you become the same as all the other companies out there. And when the other companies out there are so much bigger, you just become a small company who actually sure. yeah, has no more to add than the, than the bigger companies. So in that time, what was the, what was the, what was the best decision that you think you made? And, and what, what do you reflect on and think, goodness, I could have done that better? Hmm. Um, it sounds trite, but I, I, I talk a lot about people. Um, yeah, people sometimes mistakenly think that uh, the success of a tech business is about its services or its products. It's all about the technology, and uh, whilst that's obviously an important part, the real, um, the real sort of, um, special ingredient is the people. So the thing that um, that I've always the best decisions that I've ever made in business are recruiting people the people the right the right people yeah the, the guy uh, the guy who's the managing director of retail assist today um kevin greathead was one of our first people to join the team back in uh, in 1999 and um yeah he's he's a he's great and he's, he's obviously his career has developed over the years but you think you know you were involved with bringing that person in that's got to be to me one of the uh, one of the, the key successes recruiting the right people Okay, so if I turn that on its head and say, when you started, what do you, um, uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? <laughs> oh, so the easiest answer to that, but it's not really uh, an answer. Is I wish we'd know. I wish I'd known we were going to actually be successful. Therefore, we could have been a bit bolder in some of our decision making <laughs> early on. Um, Doesn't everybody but, say that? Do they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the standard <laughs> answer. Um, it, it's difficult because. I guess you're asking me that in the terms of uh, a, a macro level. Yeah, what what big decisions did you make? Um, but I, th- I think when you're when you're when you're running a a well established business, so a large yeah, a large you know, sort of corporate business, it's probably uh, it's probably different. When you're running an SME, it's all about small decisions that you make at the time, and yeah, you can you can. You, sometimes you make the right decision, and we've just talked about some of the right decisions, and sometimes you make the wrong decision. The, the key to it in an SME environment is if you make the wrong decision, you have to fail quickly and move on and not not you know, die in a ditch over a decision you've made. I, I can't think of anything that... Uh, I can't think of anything... Um, Presumably it was all to do with hiring the wrong person. If the big decisions were the right... Yeah, you do hire the wrong person. And, it, and that, that's not... The person's fault. It's your fault for hiring the wrong person. And sometimes it's the wrong person, not because they're not good at what they do. They might be great at what they do. They just don't fit into your environment. And, um, yeah, it goes back to what we've just been talking about, the culture. You know, when you've got a culture of a business and you've got an ethos, you've got a general way of working, it's no good going out and bringing somebody in who might be technically able and have lots and lots of experience if they can't survive in your environment. You know, in our environment, because we're an SME, you were... Yeah, people came to join us saying from large companies saying, I want to be more accountable. I don't just want to be a number. 
Um, so they came to join us and they realized what being accountable and not being a number actually meant because sometimes you have to face up to difficult situations on projects or on services where you, know, you have to deal with bad news. When you work in a much larger organization, then maybe there's people who can stand in front of you to take that flag. So they don't quite fit in. So they're great people. They just don't fit into your There's, there's no way to hide when you're in a, in a, in a smaller company. None whatsoever, none whatsoever. And, you know, I, I, um, I learned uh, one of my biggest lessons in, uh, in business, I suppose, is, and or one thing I still carry forward with me today is defend the defendable, but don't try and defend the undefendable. Yeah, I've always, uh, you know, in, when you're running a business that provides a support service, then it goes wrong occasionally. And if it didn't go wrong, then people wouldn't buy the service from you. So you have to accept it's sure. fact of life. So, and sometimes it goes wrong because of something outside of your control. Um, and sometimes it goes wrong because somebody on your side has to has, has made a mistake. As a leader, you have to sometimes stand for you have to stand forward and you have to take responsibility, even when even when it's not your fault it's gone wrong. It's still your responsibility. Um, but equally, you have to learn that you, as a supplier, you shouldn't be under the cosh for everything because sometimes these things are outside of your control or they're actually caused by the client doing something wrong. So whilst they're shouting at you around the table, yeah, you have to stand your ground because you have to, you, you need to be seen by your team sure. as being yeah, strong where you need to be, mm. but also protective where you need to be. Sure, it's that managing upwards and downwards. I get that. So has the has the pandemic and the um, the, the fashion uh, the inclination towards remote working changed any of this? Um, well, we started uh, we started um, Collect. Um, we had the we were working on the ideas for Collect during 2019, and the the plan was always that we were going to launch the business in the spring of 2020. Um, so we yeah we we had an office sorted and we had everything ready to to roll and then um the week before we launched um the pandemic had started and was yeah it's really started to become aware people started to become more and more aware of uh, of how serious and how severe this actually was um we uh, we delayed the uh, we delayed the start because uh it was we were, the day we were about to announce it. Uh, Boris Johnson went into a hospital on the the Sunday before, and whilst we don't think uh, starting a business had any effect on that, you know, it, it, we thought yeah, it's probably not a great it's not probably not great timing. So we we delayed by uh, by a, a short while, um, but we started that business as a remote business. So everybody who works that business has only ever worked remotely. Um, we, we does that make it more difficult to manage or? I think in some respects it does, yeah. Um, you, you miss, it's, it, thankfully we have the technology to, to support remote working and uh, yeah, we've all made massive use of Teams and Zoom and, uh, and uh, Google Meetings and so on. Um, so we've, uh, we've all adapted, humans do adapt, don't they? Um, I think the, uh, yeah, the, the recruitment process was interesting because we were recruiting people that, so we recruited a, a sales, uh, uh, somebody to work in sales for us, who no, none, of, none of us had ever met before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we did the normal thing, interviews via, yeah, a number of interviews via lines. You don't really know what the person's like until you meet them in the flesh. Uh, we did the same with uh, a couple of other, of other positions. 
Um, so that was a bit odd. The the thing I think really was missing was that, and and it's really hard to uh, to describe because it could be it, it could be many things. Just that conversation around the coffee machine that people tend to have, where yeah, somebody's working on a uh, on a on solving a problem, and they go off to get themselves a coffee. They bump into somebody at the coffee machine, have an idle chat about something completely unrelated, then mention work. Somebody gives them an idea, and. Yeah. So, so do, you, do you decide you're working around that, or have you have you got another way of doing that, or do you decide, look, I've, I've had to take that out of the, the equation? No, no, we've uh, we, what we what we try to do, and uh, what we what we try to do is to encourage um, informal um, calls as well as formal calls, where yeah people get together and uh, and have uh, yeah like like everybody did in their personal lives yeah how many quizzes were were held during yeah, the yeah, during yeah. the pandemic where where people were acting more interacting more socially so you were you were creating channels for uh, for people to feel as if they can have more informal chats with people they've worked closely with but may never have never have met it's not it's not been ideal and where we are now we had a board meeting in uh, in london on uh, on monday and um, the whole topic came up again. And you come together for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we came together for that. We 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 turned we came together every quarter for uh, for a board meeting. Um, but the monthly board meetings are uh, are still done remotely. Um, but we um, well, we were talking then about well, <clears throat> we need to find more opportunities for the teams to work together. Because what we found now is that we're based in Bristol as a company. Yeah, that's our that's our registered office, and we still do have people who live in Bristol. But I suppose one one advantage from the uh, from the, the remote working is that we've got people with really great technical skills or really great analytical skills who don't live in Bristol who work for the company. So you know, it's um, there. There have been some advantages because we've we've widened the uh, the the pool of, of resources, potential labour, yeah. which which I guess brings me on to um, uh, brings me on to my final question. Um, what, uh, what advice might you give to anyone starting their leadership career now? A young person, perhaps graduating from the Nottingham Business School, what would you say to them? I would say uh, we've, we've touched on uh, authenticity before. You know, the type of leader that you can be is actually already in you. Yeah, I, you, can learn, you can learn new tools, um, new tools that you can use, and, and I've made great, great use of a uh, number of tools over the years. I learned from listening to other people's stories who have followed similar paths. But one thing that I've never done, in fact, I think I've only ever really read half a management book. I read a book about uh, how uh, the McDonald's story because I wanted to understand how I could replicate good practice because the McDonald's fell foul when they opened three restaurants. I was struggling at the time to replicate good practice across retail assists in the early stages. So I've only really read about half a half a management book. But there's a tendency yeah, I've I've heard people say, I am yeah, I want to be the same as um, Jeff Bezos. I want to be the same as Richard Branson. I want to be the same as but only Richard Branson and only Jeff Bezos and only Mark Zuckerberg could be them. Um, you can only be you. But you can learn tools to augment what you've got, but you've got to look inside yourself. Um, and the reason I think that's so important is if you want to, if you want to get people working for you and engage with a vision that you've got, they've got to believe you, and they won't believe you if they believe you're somebody else. 
trying to be, you trying to be somebody else. That's fantastic. So authenticity, you are already the leader that you want to be. Alan Morris, thank you very, very much thank you. for joining us here on the NBS Business Leaders Podcast. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with Prison Governor Professor Lynn Saunders, the radio programmer Dick Stone, and the man who's headed up Experian, Standard Chartered and Burberry. That's Sir John Peace. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.